Well, my voice has been doing great this week until I get up to try to speak. <laughs> now it's giving out on me a little bit. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2 and verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> Excuse me. Daniel chapter 2 verses 20 and 21. How many knows what tomorrow is? The 4th of July, which is Independence Day, which is? And how many years? 243 years. How many of you were older to remember its first birthday? Anybody? Okay. Some people didn't even smile. <laughs> okay, but I want to talk to us tonight, it's really more of a teaching uh, tonight, but I want to kind of remind us of America's uh, Christian heritage, America's Christian heritage, and I think it's important that we review this from time to time and kind of get it into our spirit, probably, probably going to remind you of some things that you've heard before, and maybe you'll hear some things uh, that you have never heard before. But let's begin with Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for his wisdom and might, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises kings up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Let's ask the Lord to be with us tonight. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we're asking that your spirit would be with us tonight as we examine the great heritage, the great legacy that's been handed down to us. Lord, we do thank you for the United States of America. And Lord, we, we thank you, God, that it's a melting pot uh, Lord, that we are from really almost all nations of the earth. We've gathered together, and out of many, we've become one. Uh, and we thank you for that. Lord, that's, to a certain extent, a picture of how the kingdom of heaven operates. And we know America has its ills, and it has its sins, and we've drifted so far. And even in our history, we have had sins, but the one thing that we have, Lord, that so many of the nations of the earth don't have is we have the freedom to do what we're doing tonight. Lord, we're not afraid that there's going to be retaliation, that we're going to get thrown in jail. Lord, we can stand in this open setting and criticize our government uh, freely. We can protest in the streets and criticize our government freely. And Lord, we can share your name and talk about the gospel without fear of uh, any recrimination. We thank you for that, Lord. That's, that's what makes this nation a great nation, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. If you're grateful for the nation that the Lord allows you to be a part of, let's give him a hand. Amen. Amen. Gold glory, and God. Gold, glory, and God. Those, those are the three elements that have influenced the discovery, the uh, exploration, the taming, the um, civilizing of the Americas, and for our purposes, the United States of America specifically. Gold, glory, and God. There were people that came exclusively out of the desire for great wealth. America's fortunes have been built out of the desire for wealth. There were those people of such a nature and a character that they longed for 
adventure. They came for glory. But then many people came to the new world for God. Some came, they felt at the direction of God. Some came in order to spread the gospel to win what they would have called the heathen. Some came for the freedom to worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience. Those three elements are the elements that really fueled the taming of this Western Hemisphere in which we live, and the Americas in particular. When you talk about the, the heritage of America, there seems to be among uh, Americans a start line of demarcation between those that would say and paint America as a Christian nation intended to be a Christian nation, founded by Christians, for Christians, and tend to get a little bit romantic sometimes in over-portraying that influence. Not everybody that helped found America were Christians. Not everybody portrayed themselves or acted and behaved in a way as Christians. And there were many that would go by the name Christian that wouldn't know Jesus if he tapped them on the shoulder. But then there's the other group, the group that seeks to espunge from our history any Judeo-Christian influence whatsoever. They try to, to rewrite history. They try to uh, edit out the sayings of our own founding fathers, which we're going to talk about tonight, they try to paint them as uh, deist or uh, even some as uh, atheist or agnostic, and they want to uh, they want to just kind of say we were a secular nation built by secular people for secular people. And the truth of the matter is, is that both groups are wrong and both groups are, are right. Because in the United States of America, as with any nation, there are people that are children of darkness and there are people that are children of light. Let me say to you that the real dividing line in the church, in the world, in politics, in governments, the real dividing line is not between liberal or conservative. It's not between Republican or Democrat. It's not between traditionalists and, and progressives. It's not be, be, between, uh, you know, people that are religionist and humanist. The real dividing line is what it's always been. The dividing line is the difference between the children of light and the children of darkness. That's really the only dividing line that matters. Whether or not a person is part of the kingdom of God and according to God's word, if a person is not a part of the kingdom of God, then by default they're part of the kingdom of, of Satan. You're not, you can't, there's not a middle ground. There's not a, there's not a spiritual Switzerland that remains neutral to what's going on around it. Either you belong to God or you belong to Satan. Either you're a, a child of light or you're a child of darkness. Now, when it comes to this spiritual equation, there are people that we're fighting for that are prisoners of war in the spiritual darkness, in the kingdom of darkness. And we're fighting for the Lord to set them free. If, if you're thinking about the history of America, I think the metaphor that probably suits it would be the metaphor of a child growing up in a house with two parents that were unequally yoked together. 
one parent that was godly and espoused godly principles and raised that child that way. Another parent that was uh, not godly, that was interested in materialistic, uh, materialism, interested in things of this world, uh, was more interested in pragmatism than uh, in principles. And if you really want to know the truth about America, that's the kind of the way we were, America was raised. There's always been this tension between those people that were interested in the things of God and not. And some great Americans, so-called, have not fit within the Christian uh, definition, but others had a heartfelt relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that, uh, that wayward parent is pretty evident. So we don't, we're not going to talk about him because we see, we see his influence every day. And I listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a patriot. I, if, if you cut me, I bleed red, white, and blue. I think America is the greatest nation, not only on the face of the earth, but the, perhaps the greatest nation that there's ever been. So I'm there. And I, I have no sympathy for terrorists. I have no sympathy for radical Islam or any of that kind of thing. But I will tell you that one of the legitimate complaints that they use against us is that when the West comes in, it doesn't just bring its religion. It brings pornography. It brings rebellion in houses among, among uh, the structure of the house and among teenagers. It brings in materialism. Those are legitimate complaints that people have that when America gets here, they bring a corrupting influence. But they also bring people that are armed with the gospel of God. And that's the way it's always going to be in this world. You say, well, I wish God would just sort that out. Well, he said, I'm going to. He said, in the world, you're going to have some wheat and some tares. But don't you go out and, and uh, make yourself, appoint yourself as a tear inspector. Because when you start pulling up tares, you're going to get some good wheat. Leave it to the harvest. Jesus said that the harvest, the angels of God are going to harvest it and they're going to sort out for the tares from the wheat. So we're living in that world. But what our concern is, the, the godly heritage, the Christian heritage that we have, that's what we want to look at. In our text, Daniel said that it's the Lord that is in charge of the changing of the times and the seasons. That it's the Lord that's in charge of the kings that he sets up and the kings he pulls down. That it's the Lord that raises nations up and pulls nations down. In other words, God is the God of history. All of history is His story. Now, that doesn't mean that God is uh, you know, just playing a chess match with the universe. He leaves certain things up to mankind and He leaves things up to our decisions and our will and all of those kinds of things. But in that, through that, above that, below that, beyond that, God still has his sovereign hand in history. That being the case, I have to feel that the founding of the new world and the founding of the United States of America in particular, because that's whose birthday we're celebrating, that God had his hand in that. And that's what I'm interested in seeing. Because we see daily what the devil's up to. I want you to know that when you look around at the godliness, godlessness of America and you say Satan's on his job, I want you to understand that there's something else that's going on and has been going on and that is that the hand of God has been and still is involved in the United States of America. So don't leave that out. I believe God's plan for America, this is me speaking, I believe God's plan for America were for the purposes of two things. One, I believe it was for the purpose of the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ around the world. And we can, we can talk about the evil that's in America, but there has never been a nation that has sent more, financed more, spent more for the spreading of the gospel around the world than the United States of America. 
I'm not talking about our government. I'm talking about our people. The church in America is, is the financer of the majority of missions that are going on, foreign missions in the world. And it's not because we're better than other Christians. Other Christians would do that and maybe do more if they had the means. But God's blessed us with the financial resources to do that. So I believe God raised up the United States to finance the spreading of the gospel around the world because Jesus said, before I come, that's what's going to happen. happen. This gospel is going to be preached into all the world. I also believe, and I, I know that this isn't a popular statement in the, even in the church anymore, but I believe God raised up the United States of America to stand with Israel. I believe that God raised up the United States of America to have a hand in the refounding of the nation of Israel and in the defense of Israel. I believe that's God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, and I believe those are godly requirements of biblical prophecy. So let's look at, I just want, to, want you to just kind of let this get in your thinking about the, the godly heritage, the Christian heritage. 500 years before Christopher Columbus set foot in the New World, there was a Viking from Greenland named Leif Erikson. His dad was Eric the Red. He had fled from Iceland to Greenland because he had killed someone and he'd taken his family with him. But their roots were in Norway and before Leif Erikson went out exploring, first he went back to Norway. And in Norway, he stayed with, met and stayed with King Olaf who told him about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Leif Erikson, a Viking, became a Christian, converted to Christianity. He is famous for two things. He is famous for the first founding up in Canada, the first discovery by Europeans of the New World and of going back to Greenland and converting Greenland to Christianity. So uh, 500 years before Christopher Columbus, there was not only a European that set foot in the New World, there was a Christian that set foot in the New World. Christopher Columbus, his name Christopher means Christ bearer. Now look, hi history is divided on Christopher Columbus and I don't know that he, he certainly was not a perfect guy, and I'm not trying to uh, in any way whitewash his sins, but I do want to use his words. Here's what Christopher Columbus said. His name, again, Christopher, means Christ-bearer. Here's what he said about coming to the new world, what he wrote in his diary. It was the Lord who put it into my mind. I could feel his hand upon me. The fact that it would be possible to sail from there to the Indies. All who heard of my project rejected with laughter, ridiculing me. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me with the rays of marvelous illumination from the Holy Scriptures, encouraging me to continue, continually to press forward and without ceasing for a moment, they now encouraged me to make haste. Our Lord Jesus desired to perform a very obvious miracle in the voyage to the Indies to comfort me and the whole people of God. I spent seven years in the royal court discussing the matter with many persons of great reputation and with wisdom in all the arts, and in the end they concluded that it was all foolishness, so they gave it up. It is possible that those who seek see this book will accuse me of being unlearned in literature, of being a layman and a sailor, I reply with these words of Matthew eleven twenty five, Lord, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Christopher Columbus said it was the Lord that inspired me and caused me to discover the new world. That's in what? 1492 that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. In 1620, November 11th of 1620, there was a group of, of what would have called themselves 
separatists. We would call them pilgrims. They, they were not a part of the Catholic Church. They were not part of the Church of England. And so they were persecuted. They left England to go up uh, to uh, Amsterdam in order to have religious freedom. Some people said they came to the New World for religious freedom. That's not true. They went to Amsterdam, Holland, from England to get away from persecution. They had religious freedom there. But when they got there, their children were being so influenced by the godless culture that was in Holland at the time that they said, we've got to do something different. And that's when they made arrangements to sail, went back to England and to sail over the ocean to the New World. And we had on November 11, 1620, after months of travel at sea and many had died in rough seas and sickness and all of that, before they went on land at Plymouth Rock, they got together and wrote really the, the first government document in the new world. And here's what it said. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by the grace of God and of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, defender of the faith, have an undertaking for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. The first government founded in the new world said the reason we made this trip in their government document, the reason we made this trip is for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. We're talking about the Christian heritage of America. Ten years later, March 21st, 1630, John Winthrop, uh, John Winthrop, who was a Puritan pastor, preached a message called the model of Christian charity. And in it, he talks about the fact that the world would be observing how those Puritan Christians conducted themselves in the new world. And here's the word he used that they will look to us as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. He was reminding them that the eyes of the world was upon them and that America was called to be a shining city on the hill. 200 years pass. We find ourselves in a war for independence from our native Britain and the poorly funded Continental Army with its minute men wintered in Valley Forge. No shoes for a lot of them, not sufficient blankets, coats, clothing, not sufficient food. Those that were not about to starve to death were about to freeze to death. And General Washington wrote back to the powers that be and says, we need to pray. What we need is a prayer meeting. There was, there was one man who was a loyalist. He, he, was, he was, uh, had not decided whether he wanted to be with the rebels or be with England and be with the king. And he was undecided, and there were a lot of people. Not everybody in America wanted to cut ties with England. There were a lot of people that uh, also just decided to wait to see what the outcome was. And this man was not sure of who he should support. But he came home one day and he said to his wife, I've decided that we're going on the side of the colonist. Because today I saw General Washington pray. And basically he said, a man that can pray like that, God is on his side. And we want to be on his side as well. 
one of the yen. Again, our, our founding fathers were, were not perfect and not all of them were born again Christian, but I want you to listen at what, how their mind worked. Thomas Jefferson, who was one, one of uh, perhaps our most uh, free thinking of our founding fathers, but when they asked Thomas Jefferson to compose a Declaration of Independence, which was ratified, by the way, on July the 4th, 1776, that's what we're celebrating, here's the words he chose. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men were created equal and were endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In our founding document, it declares two things. It declares, number one, God created men and women. It declares, number two, that our rights don't come from government. Our rights come from the fact that we were created in the image of God. Now, we have taught our children that we did not come from the image of God. We've taught them that we bear the image of King Kong rather than the image of God Almighty. And in so doing, we have undermined the foundations. We've washed away the foundations of our freedom. And consequently, the walls of our freedom are crackling. They're cracking and they're creaking and bricks are starting to fall. And we see it before our eyes and it's because we've undermined the foundation that we were built upon and that is that we were created by Almighty God. After we won the, the uh, Revolutionary War, we existed under some articles of confederation for a dozen years or so and our founding fathers saw that we needed a better form of government. So they came together in that Second Continental Congress to write what we call the Constitution of the United States. And they got involved in a, in a fight and it seemed that there was no compromise. There was no way around. Benjamin Franklin, again, was one of our least godly founding fathers. But even Benjamin Franklin, after all of that arguing, had these words to say. And I, I'm going to read them to you. I know it's a lot of reading, but I want you to listen to what he said. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding. In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, we were sensible of danger and we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. They were right back in that Constitution Hall there in Philadelphia. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future and national felicity. And have, have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a spiral cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interest. Our projects will be confounded and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to the future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven 
and its blessing on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to our business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. That was Benjamin Franklin. If you don't know it, your history, old Ben Franklin was a player. <laughs> he, he liked the women. He was not a church-going, born-again Christian as we know it. But even Ben Franklin had enough sense to say, the only thing that got us this far is relying on God, and we need to call on his name. John Adams, second president of the United States, had this to say about the Constitution that was written that day. He said, avarice, ambition, revenge, and licentiousness would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. The genius of America. By the way, you ought to, you ought to go home and Google in the... Uh, uh, 220 years since we've had our Constitution, you ought to go home and Google and find out how many Constitutions France has been through since then. We've existed for 200 years, 200 and, what, two, uh, 220 years under the same Constitution. 230. 1889 under the same Constitution. But here's what has held us together. What's held us together is we all had the same moral compass in America. And that was the Judeo-Christian biblical ethic. And when, a, when people lose that, and they say, I don't have to listen to the government, you know, we already have government officials that say, I'm not going to enforce the law if I don't want to. I don't like that law. I'm not going to enforce it. Right? We have cities saying to the federal government, I don't like that law. I'm not going to enforce it. We have a federal law against that, that, that says it's illegal to use marijuana, and we've got several states that it's legal in their state. And whenever you have a situation where people are no longer, remember our Constitution is that we are governed by the consent of the governed. And whenever they lose that consent, let me tell you, the only way the government keeps control is troops in the street. That's the only way martial law breaks out. He said, boy, I'd hate to see that happen. That's the only way you'll be able to walk down the street without getting murdered. The first man that was elected president under that new system, that constitution was good old George Washington, the father of our nation. His farewell address as president, here's what he said. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life? If the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths, which are the instruments of, in, uh, of investigation in the courts of justice, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on the minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principle. That's fancy talk for saying this. We can't be a moral people without being a godly people. And the most, the, the, the most stalwart supports of our government is religion and morality.
Not long after that, after George Washington left office and John Adams was president, once again we entered into a war with Great Britain. Talked about this the other day. In that war of 1812, Francis Scott Key found himself out in Baltimore Harbor, uh, an unwitting prisoner. He had went on a British ship to try to secure the release of a prisoner there and did not know that the battle for Fort McHenry was about to break out and flying above Fort McHenry was Old Glory, the American flag. And he wrote a poem, and you know that poem, the first stanza of that poem has become our national anthem, okay, Oh say, can you see by the star's early light what so gladly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming. But I like one of the stanzas he wrote a little further on. Oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand between their loved home and the war's desolation, blessed with victory and peace may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that has made and preserved us a nation. Then conquered we must when our cause it is just, and this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. By the end, not quite the end of, of that 19th century, we found ourselves in a brittle, bitter civil war. The president of the Union at that time, Lincoln, when he went into office, you can read his own writings, when he went into office, seemed to be little more than a scoffer to the things of God. But by the time the Civil War ended, you can tell that there had been a true turning. I believe he became a Christian. In the middle, in 1863, in the middle of that, Lincoln wrote a proclamation that, that Congress had called on him to write. We're talking about the Congress of the United States and the President of the United States. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and of nations, has by a resolution requested the president to designate and set apart a national day, uh, a day for national prayer and humiliation. Often what I'm reading to you is called Abraham's Lincoln Thanksgiving Day Proclamation. It is not a Thanksgiving Day Proclamation. It is a proclamation of a national day of prayer and humiliation and of fasting. And here's what he said. Whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that the genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And insomuch as that we know that by His divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that that awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land may be a punishment inflicted upon us from our, for our presumptuous sins, to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people, we have been the recipients of the choice bounties of heaven. We've been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers and wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we've, come too, we've become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency 
and forgiveness. That's the President of the United States asking America to repent. Not many people know this, but in the camps of both the Union soldiers and the Confederate soldiers during the Civil War, revival was breaking out in those army camps. And people were being saved and baptized in those war camps. Before the Civil War, America had drifted into godliness. Church attendance was down. But a revival broke out even in the midst of Civil War. By the time Abraham Lincoln was elected to his second term as president, he was so convinced and convicted about the power of God that his second inaugural address sounds more like a sermon than a political speech. If you go to Washington, and if you've not, I urge you to, and you go to the Lincoln Memorial, so powerful, you will read chiseled in stone these words. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work that we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who have borne the, the battle and for the, his widow and his orphan, to do all which we may at, to achieve a, and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. The godly heritage of America, this is not to mention how the Reformation in the 1500s had such an influence on the founding of the new world. It's not to mention uh, how the great awakening, a spiritual great awakening in the 1700s led to the freedom of the United States. It's not to mention that our leading universities to this day, our leading universities in this nation were founded as seminaries. It's not to mention the hospitals that have been founded in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Psalm 33, 10 through 19 says. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he's chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions the hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any man by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. It is not the power of the greatest military force the world's ever known, which is the United States military. It is not our military that keeps us safe. It is the providence and the mercy of Almighty God. Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sins are reproach to any people. Psalm 9.17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Several years ago, and we're getting ready to wrap this up. Several years ago, I was riding in my car and I was listening to Focus on the Family. It's been well over 20 years ago. And I heard Dr. James Dobson interviewing the man that was at that time the commandant of the U.S. Marines who was a Christian, a godly man that was calling for America to return to the Lord. And I became so overwhelmed that I wept and wept and wept over the United States and over our sins. And somewhere along those lines, the Lord inspired me to write the words to a song. And don't worry, I'm not going to sing it, but I am going to share it with you. I thought about the price that was paid at places like Normandy and Iwo Jima in the South Pacific. I had a 
I had a one grandfather that worked out in Brunswick and built ships for the Navy. And my maternal grandfather served in the, in the Navy and uh, had such severe nosebleeds, they discharged him out of the Navy and promptly turned around and drafted him into the Army. So he served in the South Pacific in the Navy and then I think in Italy in the Army. But I thought about that and I wrote these, this, this uh, little song. On a hill in the South Pacific, soldiers raised a flag in victory. Though the battle was hard and long, in the end they sang a song of liberty. When I think of all the blood they shed that stained the sandy beaches red and how they died to keep us strong and free, I know we owe a debt of gratitude to that small multitude who gave their all for folks like you and me. But today, our babies are not safe, even in their mother's wombs. And we send our little kids away to face another frightening day of violence in our nation's schools. And moms and dads are torn apart, leaving tiny breaking hearts. And greed has replaced the golden rule. And it brags a tear to my eyes as I think of those who bled and died to save what we're about to lose. We need life in America again. And we need justice for our fellow man. And we need freedom to ring across our land. We need life in America again. On a hill outside Jerusalem, Soldiers nailed a Savior on a tree. And though his battle was hard and long, in the end he gave a song of victory. And when I think of all the blood he shed that stained his robe of crimson red and how he died to save a wretch like me, when I think how Jesus bled and died, how can I be satisfied to live in less than liberty? Yet today, our babies are not safe, even in their mother's womb. And we send our little kids away to face another frightening day of violence in our nation's schools. And moms and dads are torn apart, leaving tiny breaking hearts. And greed has become the golden rule. But there's a lot of hope that comes to my eyes when I think how Jesus bled and died to give us all a chance to choose. We can have God in America again. And we can have love for our fellow man. And revival can sweep across our land. And it's not too late to choose. Here's what 2 Corinthians 7, 14, you know that. What it says, Solomon prayed on that great dedication of the temple and he said, Lord, right now everybody's worshiping you, but what if they forget about you? What if they spurn your commands? What if they live godless life so that you send pestilence or famine or sword, if they come back to this place and they call on you and they seek your face, will you hear from heaven? And the Lord said to Solomon, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Has there been in America's past godless individuals, greedy individuals, people that were, were out for gold and glory? Oh, yeah. But there's been people that knew God, that loved God, 
trusted God, and even the people that didn't know him had enough sense to know they needed him. That's the Christian heritage of the United States. Now, we've got a choice about what we can do. We can look around and we can say, oh, what we've lost. Or we can say, you know what? This is not the first time. Mid-1700s, America looked wayward beyond hope. God sent a great awakening. Before the Civil War, America seemed like it was going down the wrong path. No hope. God sent revival right in the middle of war. In the 1950s, when those soldiers came back from, the, from World War II, it seemed like that America was on the wrong path. God let a mighty healing revival sweep across this land. In the 1960s and 70s, whenever it looked like that the hippies were going to burn the whole thing down, over in California, there were Jesus people that were being baptized by the thousands in the Pacific Ocean. Don't you look around and see history through the lens of what the devil's up to. You remember that it is God who rules over the changing of times and seasons. And you say, you think God can let America enter into a different season? All I know is what he said to Israel about their problems. If my people that are called by unto my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, repent of their sins, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their lands. I don't think any people are hopeless that are willing to call out to the God of heaven. Amen. I want you to stand.